welcome to PRN, Pause, Renew, Next, a podcast about soul care, scripture, and stories of faith. I'm Jenny Detweiler, and I'm so glad that you've joined me here today. Today's podcast guest is Melissa Corkum, and she has a lot of energy and a lot of knowledge to share. She's got a lot going on, too. She's a parent trainer, an Enneagram coach, an essential oil specialist, and an adoptive mom. Melissa is also co-host of the Adoption Connection podcast. She and I had so much to talk about, we couldn't even fit it into one podcast episode. In this first part of the conversation, we talk about connected parenting and how it really changed the way that Melissa and her husband parented as they began their adoptive journey. Now, as a forewarning before you tune me out if you don't have an adopted child yourself, this information is actually very relevant to any kind of parenting. And honestly, we talk about some brain science as well, so it's just good information all around. Melissa is engaging, and she's got a lot of important information to share. As an adoptive mom myself, I'm familiar with connected parenting, and it was a joy to unpack it a little bit with her today. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, Jenny. Thanks so much for having me. So my name is Melissa Corkum, and my husband and I live just north of Baltimore, and we have six kids through birth and adoption, and we also have a really cute granddaughter. And so we currently have four kids and a granddaughter living at home, and two of our kids are out on their own. And they have taught me so much about what works in parenting and what doesn't. And so everything I know, I learned honestly in the hard way. I was, I did not come to these things easily. Um, and so now I'm a parent coach and I love it. And I help families find brain-based solutions to challenging behaviors so they can laugh more and yell less. Which is awesome. And I can't wait to talk more about that today because I already told you I've had a rough parenting day. So (laughs) all the tips for me and my listeners. Um, Your family is built through birth and adoption. Can you kind of share a little bit about your passion for adoption and also like how you and your husband started that journey? Sure. So my adoption journey actually starts much before a lot of adoptive parents. I'm an adult adoptee and I was adopted from Korea as an infant. And I have two siblings also adopted. None of us are biologically related And I didn't think too much about it. I mean, I always knew I was adopted and it it wasn't, but it wasn't a huge part of my identity. And then when I met my husband, we were on our first date and he said two things to me. He said, one, I'm looking for a wife. So if at any point you know that you can't marry me, we can be done. (laughs) And then he also said, and I've also always wanted to adopt. So if you're not okay with that, you can also let me know now. I'm sure he said it nicer than that, but that's kind of. Like how it sticks in my mind. And so I remember looking at him and being like, well, I'm adopted and I think it went okay. And so I guess I have to be okay with it. (laughs) I'm just wondering, like on a first date, were you all on board with that? Or were you thinking, wow, this is really forward? You know what? I am kind of a no nonsense, no fluff kind of girl. And I kind of appreciated like the upfrontness. I hadn't dated really before him and I had had just lots of you know, friends that were guys, but 
nobody really serious. I think it's because I have a really strong eight wing on the Enneagram. And I think I scared a lot of people. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of, it was kind of refreshing, I think, to just have someone who knew what he wanted. And I felt like, okay, well, I'm not going to scare this one off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of from the beginning, you guys were on that path. We did. We, we kind of thought naively that we would have a bunch of kids by birth and kind of like top it off with an adoption. Like I, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about our view of adoption 20 years ago because we just hadn't thought it all the way through. And because it wasn't such a huge part of my identity, I just didn't know all the nuances and and the ins and outs and the grief and the loss. And I, I think we just thought, well, we'll just top it off with an adoption at the end because that's part of, you know, what we want to do as a family and God had other plans. So we had two kids by birth pretty early on in our marriage and then adoption just kind of literally fell into our laps. And so just the, all the dominoes fell after that. And then we ended up with four kids. Yeah. And you have, and you have two by birth as well. Yeah. So two by birth and then four through adoption. Yeah. You have a really loud house. I bet. We do. Uh, I guess I'm, maybe I'm just used to it. We have a big family. We're a multi-generational family. My parents also live with us in an apartment. And so I guess sometimes it can be loud, but all the kids are older now. Our youngest is 13. And then of course we have the baby running around, but I think as they get older, they kind of retreat to their bedrooms and their (laughs) screen time and their private lives. And so I guess it's not nearly as loud maybe as you would think. Yeah. That sounds like a fun place to be. Um, so you're an empowered to connect parent trainer. And I really wanted to talk to you about that because, um, I was introduced to connected parenting. Maybe let's see, we have a son who's adopted and he's turning five. He just turned five. So I'm going to say maybe seven years ago, partly because I work at a counseling center and some of the people that I work with were going to be trained in Texas with TBRI with Karen Purvis herself. And then they ended up doing a simulcast at my work. So I went to that and picked up some stuff, which I thought was really good therapeutically and stuff like that. And then we were on our own foster care adoption journey. So I went in a little more with that in mind and trying to soak up as much as I could. And so that has kind of been our idea of what adoptive parenting is going to look like from the beginning. But it's a little bit different than regular parenting. Can you talk about the premise of what Empowered to Connect is about and how it differs from normal parenting methods? Sure. So we started with our two kids by birth, parenting just the way that we had been parented, right? So if our kids were misbehaving, we would, you know, kind of punish them with timeouts or removing privileges. Um, It was very logic-based, like if this happens, then that. And I think the idea was, right, that you would create a situation that made them want to behave because misbehaving should feel bad enough that you wouldn't want to do it anymore. And it worked really well for those two kids. And then when we brought our son home from Korea, he's actually the youngest in our family. I knew nothing about trauma or attachment and we had pre-adoptive training, but it was more about transracial, like cultural things, which we kind of blew through. Cause I was like, well, he kind of looks like half our family. Anyway, we were different than most typical like white families because he was going to look like me. And he had two, you know, an aunt and an uncle who were also born in Korea. And my sister was married to a black guy at the time. We just had a lot of diversity in our family. And so I was like, eh, that's not going to matter. And then 
they, it was just a big adoption training for our whole agency. And then there was a lot of talk about orphanage behaviors and our son's from Korea and they have a foster care system that's similar to the United States. And so when they mentioned about institutions and orphanages, I also blew through that because I was like, oh, he's been with this loving foster family. We don't have to worry about all of that. Um, so nothing that worked for our first two kids worked for him. And so he's the reason why we had to dig deeper. And I had already read The Connected Child, which is kind of like the flagship book for um, trust-based relational intervention or connected parenting. But I didn't understand it. I thought it was too soft. I didn't think it matched my personality. I kind of put it on a shelf until things got really hard with our son. And I, you know, you get desperate. And so you start getting all the books off the shelf again. And so there was just something about this that started to make sense for us. And so I dragged my husband to Texas, exactly like you said, and we got trained. (laughs) (laughs) But what was groundbreaking in this idea of parenting was that behavior was communication and that behind these behaviors was this need and that we couldn't, especially for kids who had changed primary caregiver or had early trauma in their life. And there's a list in TBRI of different things, like even a stressful pregnancy, um, early medical intervention, exposure to drugs and alcohol, all these different things. And our son actually checked off quite a few of these boxes once I learned these things. And I had all these light bulb moments. And so it's this idea that our kids have these needs. And when they have these unmet needs, then they don't have another way to get their needs met. And so they start using these really big behaviors. And so TBRI and, and Empower to Connect gave us a new lens to see behaviors through. And then these parenting tools for how to you know, connect first before we correct it and to understand about the upstairs and the downstairs brain and the different parts of the brain and how they were driving our son's behavior. And it really just radically changed, not just our parenting, but just how we see people in the world to be more compassionate and really ask these questions, be curious, like what, what's going on behind the behavior? Why do you think they might be acting that way instead of just trying to punish it out of somebody? So you really have to put on like a detective hat almost and and figure out like, what is this child trying to tell me? And one of the things I struggle with sometimes is trying to figure that out because sometimes I'm not sure they know what it is that they're trying to do. So yeah. it really does take, <laughs> it really does take just some detective skills, I feel like. Um, how do you feel like, or what are some of the basic premises of connected parenting? Besides like looking for behaviors, can you talk just real briefly about that? Yeah. So there's like three pillars. Um, there's empowering principles, connecting principles, and connect correcting principles. So empowering talks about just seeing our kids as whole people and realizing that we, they will be better set up for success if we have met some basic needs like food, water, and sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we think about like Maslow's tr- hierarchy of needs, right? Like we need these basic things. And for those of our kids who have had early experiences where maybe they weren't loved and cared for the way that they needed to be, or their past was unpredictable, even like we just talked about, like even just this change in primary caregiver leaves a lot of big question marks in brain, in little kids' brains and changes the way they see the world. Um, they are more sensitive to these feelings of hunger and thirst, feeling sick. Um, 
Dr. Stephen Porges has done a lot of research in something called polyvagal theory and felt safety. And so like mm. our kids need to feel safe, um, which can be elusive when they've come to us with all these previous experiences. So empowering principles are those things, just kind of making sure that we're setting a, a bar for success across the board physically. And then the connecting principles are thinking about our relationship and really prioritizing that. Um, you know, Bruce Perry says that emotional maturity is the cumulative sum of positive social emotional interactions that a person has, right? So we have to, we can't teach our kids to be mature. We kind of have to relationship it into them. And Dr. Purvis, who was the creator of TBRI, used to say, um, what is broken in relationship heals in relationship. So it's just this idea that connecting has to happen before anything else, that we can't be teachers for our kids if they feel disconnected from us. And then of course the correcting, we have, we can't just let our kids walk all over us, um, that there are, there is structure that needs to happen. And so that's, you know, having our kids do redos, having them do it the right way, giving them a chance to, um, calm down and make better choices, um, holding boundaries in place, but lovingly and not in a punitive way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You did a great job of summing that up. I feel like there's so much there, so, but we'll leave it there for now. And then I'll link to some more resources at the end of the podcast. If people want to go learn more about that. Um, you talk a lot about helping parents shift their view of behavior so they can laugh more and yell less. You said that at the beginning, and I really want to deep dive into that because I know everybody wants that. And I have four boys, so my kids are not grown yet, and it is super loud in our house. So sometimes I find myself yelling just to be heard. And that's yeah. Never, <laughs> never really what I want. Was there a time that you were more of a stressed out parent? And how have you changed your mindset to be able to laugh more? So it's a daily practice. And I will say, I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm not doing it all right. So I'm not here because I've figured it all out. Um, and in fact, a lot of times I say that I help other parents because it just keeps me more accountable. Like when I realize what my job is, I'm like, you have to do this, Melissa, because people are looking to you. You know, I feel I like it, it sets my own bar higher. <laughs> um, uh. So I for sure. Um, my natural inc inclination is high structure, right? So like if you go to school and you left your lunch at home and I've already reminded you a hundred times, like put it in your backpack, you know, before you walk out the door or pack it before you leave, you know, pack it the night before, if I've tried to help set you up for success and, and you don't do it, like I'm one of those people that's like stinks for you. I guess you'll be hungry, <laughs> you know, like that's what I want. Um, and that doesn't work for our kids who haven't always had food or felt cared for. Um, so I know there's a time and place for boundaries, but you know, it is my natural inclination to just be the militant parent, to march people through, to get things done. I like control. I like order, all of those things. Um, so, I mean, this tagline of laugh more, yell less really is my own reminder too, that, you know, before I was parenting kids with really challenging behaviors, when everything was just going the way I thought it should be going, I was a fun mom. I thought, you know, I liked field trips and play dates and playgrounds and all of those things. And I felt like 
having to manage challenging behaviors was like playing whack-a-mole and it was exhausting. And I just felt like it sucked all the energy out of me. And so then I felt like it was my right not to be the fun mom because these kids had just sucked all the energy out of the day. And I had to kind of shift my mindset to realize again, back to Bruce Perry's definition that we can't afford not to prioritize the positive interactions um, and we have to find space for them in between all the correcting or else we get in this downward spiral. If all I'm doing is correcting and yelling all day long, it's like more yelling begets more bad behavior, which begets more yelling. And then like, when do you, how do you get out of that? Yeah. Okay. Tell me just, this was not one of the questions I asked you ahead of time, but what do you do in your house that creates laughter? What are some of the things that you like to do? So I like to have families set up like what I call a foundation of fun, right? We have certain things that are non-negotiables in our families. Like you don't ever punish your kids by telling them they can't brush their teeth, right? Like there's certain <laughs> things, right? That we do right. all the time. They just have to happen. They're part of our routine. And our kids that struggle really need rhythm and routine. Um, and also if we think about maturity being the sum of these positive interactions, they're literally as important as brushing your teeth, right? It's not a privilege to have fun interactions as a family. And sometimes we are tempted to take those things away as punishments. Like you didn't behave this way. So like no pizza and family movie night, either for you or for the whole family, you know, however it goes. And so when I work with families, one of the first things we do is set up this foundation of fun where we say, um, and it depends on the family and it depends on what their level of stress is, you know, I encourage families to have a daily foundation of fun and then also maybe like a weekly one. So the daily ones can be really simple. It could be just pulling up a funny YouTube video, you know, that, you know, everyone's going to laugh at. Um, but to set a time of the day that you do that no matter what. And so like set an alarm on your phone. And so when it beeps, everyone drops what they're doing and you find the funniest YouTube video that you can find. And it's amazing how that can work as like this pattern interrupt because your kid might be having a fit or maybe you're throwing a fit and the timer goes off and you're like, stop, it's time for our fun, our daily funny YouTube video. Right. And you do that. And then a lot of times we won't feel like going back to the fit. We can then just move on. Um, and the, the great thing about that is we're not using it as a manipulative technique to get our kids to stop. It's just the thing that happens every day at four or every day yeah. at one, right? Like it's, it's happening whether we're having a good day or it's happening whether we're having a bad day. And so it kind of takes that transaction piece out of it. And it just equals, this is something we value as a family. And then weekly things could be like a special meal or a movie night or something like that. And I try to help families find something that all of their kids will get on board with and enjoy. And I work with a lot of families who are parenting teens or like tweens. And so it gets a little trickier, you know, your boys are all five. And so there's a lot of things that you could offer to them that they'd probably jump up and down about no matter what, but it gets a little bit harder when you have like a 15 or 17 year old and you're trying to get them to join you for some fun. Yeah. My oldest one is 13. So I'm, I'm getting there with the wanting to be in your room a little more and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How do you recommend that parents define success? Like, how do you know when you're doing a good job or when your kids are on the right track? That is hard. I feel like as a parent, it is really hard. And so for so long, I define success based on my kids' behavior. Like 
we it was a sex, successful day if no one had a meltdown or is it it was a successful day if we got to the grocery store and back without you know some kind of big public display of drama and when you have kids with really challenging behaviors who have brain differences and attachment issues you we just don't have control over those things and i always tell parents you know if you do all the trust-based parenting things exactly right, you can still have kids that have really big challenging behaviors. Like even though we can fulfill needs and meet needs, it's not a magic formula that means that all of the hard things will go away. And so I was just devastated for years thinking I was such a failure as a mom because we just did, never had days without something happening. And with six kids, like the, you know, and if you have more than one kid, right? Like the chances just exponentially increase <laughs> that something will go wrong, quote unquote. And so I really had this kind of hit rock bottom and realized that success had to be defined by something I could control. Mm-hmm. Um, that if I define success as me taking care of myself, you know, going for a walk in the morning before the kids went up, got up, um, you know, putting three meals on the table or whatever it is for you, right? It doesn't, it's different for every family. Then I could check those boxes off because I was in control of them. And if I got to the end of the day and had done those things, then that was success. Even if it felt like the whole world was crashing down around me, um, that I could kind of stand firm in that definition. And we have adult kids now who are making big decisions and they're not always the ones that I would make. And so just to know that that doesn't reflect back on me, that I'm doing what I'm called to do. I'm doing the the best that I can. And that whatever happens after that is not necessarily on me. Yeah. I like that perspective. That's really good. Um, we kind of talked about some bad behaviors and I mean, we could just stay right there and talk about all the bad behaviors for a long time. But what do you wish parents knew about bad behavior? So I wish that they could understand that it wasn't always about them. A lot of times bad behavior feels personal, especially if it's like the name calling or the worst mom ever. Um, Also that there there are a lot of can'ts, not won'ts in bad behavior. Um, And so I've pared it down to five reasons that I think that if we can address these five things that that helps us, you know, like you were talking about, it's hard to have your behavior detective hat on and tease out what all these things are. And so I've pared it down into five areas, um, physical, which we've already talked about, like food, water, sleep, sensory things. You know, a lot of our kids have sensory issues. And if you think about all the different ways our bodies are trying to process sensory input, um, that's taking a lot of bandwidth for some of our kids, which means that they don't have the bandwidth to do meet some of our expectations. Um, felt safety, which we already talked a little bit more about. And I think this one probably is one of the number one things, especially with kids who have these adverse experiences, um, that their nervous system has been rewired to kind of be hypervigilant to danger um, that, that our kids have felt out of control. And it just cascades into so many different pieces. Um, so felt safety is a huge one emotional regulation, like our ability to have a big feeling and not let it drive our behaviors and then skills, um, specifically executive functioning things, transitions, being able to organize our thoughts, being able to hold things in working memory, all of these things. You know, we ask our kids to do things sometimes that seem so simple to us because a lot of us as parents have pretty functional executive functioning 
systems. And we don't realize how many skills we're using to just do something like get dressed. And we tell our kids, go get dressed. Why can't you get dressed? It's such a simple command, but it's so, it's so many things. It's so many tiny steps to Mm -hmm. get there. And, um, I think if we assume that our kids could, if they would, um, and we make some accommodations, then we can get a lot further as parents without as many battles. Yeah. I'm thinking about my son today asking me to help him put on his clothes. And I was like, buddy, you can do it. But I went and helped him anyway. So that was a good example for you. Yeah. See, you had a great parenting day. (laughs) Yay. Thank you. That's right. That's right. Um, Can you share a little bit about punishments? You talked about punishments working really well with your first kids, um, your biological kids. But with um, adopted kids, it's a little bit different. If punishments aren't working, what do you think parents can do? So I like to use this analogy. If punishments aren't working, and I'm not even sure that punishments are a great place to start for parenting anyway, we've really shifted all of our parenting to be kind of this more brain-based view, right? But the brain literally controls everything that's happening in our bodies. So if we start all the way back to the brain um, and we put our detective hats on and we start learning and observing what our kid's behavior is telling us about what their brain can and can't do. Um, And if your child has any sort of diagnosis or checks any of these, you know, other boxes we were talking about, kids from hard places, right? Like that they've separated from a caregiver, they've had a stressful pregnancy, they've had a stressful birth, um, or if they have any diagnosis, like an ADHD diagnosis or an autism diagnosis, right? That tells us that their behaviors are showing that they have a brain that's working differently than kind of what we call like a neurotypical brain. And our brain's a physical part of our body. And when we have a diagnosis like that, it tells us that there's something there that's not working quite the way it was meant to work. And so if we have a child with like um, diabetes, we don't think twice about giving them insulin. Or if we have a child who can't walk, maybe they have you know, a physical disability and they need a wheelchair. We never think twice about those things. Like we call them accommodations in the disability world and they're really accepted. Um, But accommodations for brain-based disabilities are often reframed to be um, like, like we're being crutches, like we're being too soft, like we shouldn't be doing that, like we're spoiling our kids. And so if punishments aren't working, I think, again, going back to this idea of skill versus will, can't versus won't, um, what if we thought about accommodating our child's brain, their physical disability, um, how would that change the way we thought about how we reacted to bad behavior? That is a very good word and really important to remember, I think. I think as parents, sometimes we pick up on those things out in public. Other people don't pick up on those things. So that can be hard too. I think advocacy is definitely a piece of that as well. The whole journey. There is a really popular, we talked about it a little bit, Empowered to Connect book called The Connected Child. And it was written many years ago and it's kind of made the rounds. It's like the go-to book, but now a new book is coming out, right? It is. It's actually out. Yeah, it It came out July 7th. It's called The Connected Parent. And it was written by um, my co-host for the Adoption Connection podcast and the late Dr. Karen Purvis. So we talked a little bit about her. She was the brainchild, the compassionate heart behind trust-based relational intervention. And eight years ago, Lisa and Dr. Purvis started this book. And basically, Lisa's vision for the book was that it would infuse all these real life stories, that it wouldn't just be 
theory and the connected child does have practical tips, but it's all written from a more professional standpoint. Um, and she really thought like, what if we dove deeper into these with more stories for parents so they could really, really understand how to put it all into practice. And so the format of the book is really cool. It's Lisa telling a real life story about something that's happened in her family. And she has 12 kids through birth of an adoption. So she's got lots of stories to tell. And then Dr. Purvis explaining um, how that relates to the principles of connected parenting and some of the brain science and the attachment science. And then Lisa ends with a story. So every chapter has real life examples, Dr. Purvis's wisdom and knowledge, and then more real life examples. And it's, it's a pretty quick read, um, but it's jam packed, just full of amazing things. And so I would say you wouldn't even have to read the connected parent or the connected child. Um, there's enough background information at the beginning to kind of help you understand like why our kids history matters. Um, but both books I think are probably must haves for all parents, but for sure adoptive and foster parents. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so excited. I realized it was coming out, but I didn't realize it was already out. Like I was seeing it advertised everywhere, like coming soon. So that is really exciting. I wanted to, I'm starting a new thing this season, asking people about their own soul care, because my podcast is about soul care, scripture, and stories of faith. And I've kind of made soul care an, an overarching theme maybe, but not asked my guests specifically what they do that helps. But as we're following up, talking about parenting children that come from hard places. I think our soul care is a really big part of that. Yeah. So would you mind? Yeah, for sure. Would you mind sharing what are some of the things that soul care is looking like for you in this season of your life? I think right now my non-negotiables are some kind of movement. Um, I've just realized. So, you know, there's like, I feel like there's self-care that feels like escapism. And so for me, that's like Hallmark Channel and, you know, <laughs> hiding away from the world. But I I realize that I don't come out of that necessarily more ready or feel like a better mom. Like it gives me a break, but it's not really filling me up. It's just helping me escape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so soul care, I feel like helps us refresh, like actually come back energized to do what we need to do. Um, and so for me, that means some kind of movement, um, walking or yoga. I'm, I'm a really big proponent of how movement helps us release a lot of the stress that we carry and the trauma that we carry. And so that feels good to me. It feels good to my body and it feels good to my soul. And then I always come back. I feel like ready to do the next thing that I have to do. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. I love that so much. Okay. Well, is there anything else about connected parenting that you wanted to share or any resources that you feel like would be helpful for people? Um, So I have an on-demand parent training library. And so I would love to invite your listeners to hop over there and they can create a free account. Um, and so they can just go to the corkboardonline.com slash PRN to get access to that. Very cool. And I will definitely put a link to that. Thank you for that. That's awesome. Sure. Okay. So we are going to continue our conversation, but it's going to be about the Enneagram in the next podcast. So I'm looking forward to that as well. My favorite topic. <laughs> Thank you.
Wow, that was a lot of good information, wasn't it? Thanks again, Melissa, for being on the podcast and for sharing some of the helpful things you've learned over the years with our listeners. And thank you for making your on-demand training library available to our listeners. Friends, if you want to go check that out, you can go to the corkboardonline.com slash PRN. And I will link to that on today's show notes as well. If you want to hear more from Melissa, go check out her podcast, The Adoption Connection Podcast. Well, friends, as much as I loved this conversation about connected parenting, the second half of our conversation is just as good, if not better, because we're talking about one of my favorite things, the Enneagram. Now, for those of you who have been following this podcast very long, you know that I love the Enneagram and I like to talk about it a lot. So if you want to check out next week's podcast episode, you can hear us talk about the Enneagram. Melissa is a coach and she really knows what she's talking about. Well, friends, you can follow PRN at the website pauserenewnext.com, where you can check out podcast episodes and new blog posts, or you can find Pause Renew Next on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Well, that is all for today's podcast episode. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN, Pause, Renew, Next, the podcast. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus. Jesus.